This week, Diebold Nixdorf negotiates with lenders, Sears receives asset sale proposals, and Claire Storrs continues its fight with Oak Tree in bankruptcy court. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and LATAM. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Stephen Opper, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, our Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, sits down with senior reporter Andrew Berlin and covenant analyst Peter Washkowitz to discuss some of the more volatile credits post-second quarter results. They will analyze Diebold, Sanchez Energy, and Ultra Petroleum. It's Sunday, August 19th. Reorg has learned that the connected commerce and ATM provider Diebold Nixdorf has retained Evercore and Jones Day as it seeks covenant relief from lenders and faces a cash outlay to certain shareholders for the redemption of Diebold Nixdorf AG shares. The situation unfolded on August 1st, when the company lowered its adjusted EBITDA guidance for 2018 to a range of $280 million to $320 million, from a prior range of $380 million to $410 million. Diebold later disclosed on August 13th that it will redeem some 3.8 million shares for about $255 million under a minority shareholder put right, and that it will use cash on hand and borrowings under its revolving facility to fund $160 million of the initial obligation while settling the additional obligation later this week. Andrew Berlin and Peter Washkowitz will discuss Diebold in depth later in this podcast, so please stay tuned. Sears Majority Shareholder ESL Investments disclosed on Tuesday that it had sent Sears a non-binding proposal for the acquisition of Kenmore & Ship, the home improvement division of Sears Home Services. In the letter to the board's special committee, ESL said the quote transaction should be undertaken together with tender and exchange offers, designed to allow holdings to reduce its debt, extend its maturity profile, and alleviate its liquidity challenges. ESL proposed to buy Kenmore in a cash acquisition based on a cash-free, debt-free enterprise value of $400 million, conditioned on ESL's receipt of equity financing from a potential partner on acceptable terms. The fund also offered to acquire SHIP in a cash acquisition based on a cash-free, debt-free enterprise value of $70 million, subject to certain adjustments. ESL seeks to enter into definitive agreements related to the transactions as early as August 24th, according to the letter, and is, quote, prepared to move as quickly as possible to complete due diligence. In an April letter to the board, ESL had also expressed interest in purchasing the parts direct business in a combined transaction with SHIP for an enterprise value of $500 million, but said in the most recent letter that ESL has prioritized transactions involving Kenmore and SHIP, quote, in light of the complexities of separating parts direct from Sears Home Services, and the timeline required to complete such a transaction. This week, the Claire's debtors in the ad hoc first lien group fired back against Oak Tree's objection to the debtors' motion to extend their exclusivity periods. The ad hoc first lien group asserted that the debtors have made, quote, substantial progress in the restructuring efforts, and now command support from an overwhelming majority of the creditors, including holders of 84% of the debtors' pre-petition funded debt. The debtors added that they will be prepared to seek confirmation of either their existing plan or an alternative plan at confirmation, and may elect to proceed with an auction or seek approval of one or more asset sales. The debtors also said they would seek to confirm any alternative plan that adversely changes the creditor's treatment, quote, without approval from the affected stakeholder or classes through an applicable cram-up or cram-down provisions of Section 1129, end quote. On Friday morning, Judge Mary Walrath approved the Clarence debtors' motion to extend their planned filing exclusivity period through October 15th, 
and their planned solicitation exclusivity period through December 14th, overruling the objection by Oak Tree. At the hearing, Ray Schrock of Wild Gottschall for the debtors said that the debtors are continuing to market their assets with interested parties and are, quote, optimistic that they will receive bids by the August 31st bid deadline. Separately, counsel for Oak Tree asserted that Oak Tree is seeking to raise $1.5 billion to fund its bid for the debtors' assets and that Oak Tree believes this amount will be fully committed. Counsel for the First Liens noted that this is new news to the RSA parties and that they have not seen a copy of this bid. This past week, the Claire's debtors also filed a preliminary objection to Oak Tree's motion seeking derivative standing. The debtors argued that Oak Tree's standing is, quote, at core a confirmation objection, since it takes issue with the global plan settlement, which the filing called a cornerstone to the debtors' confirmation. On Thursday evening, the ad hoc first lien group also filed an objection to Oak Tree's motion, saying that the ad hoc first lien group is working with the first lien term loan agent and the indenture trustee for the first lien notes, and, quote, expects to file an adversary proceeding asking the court to enforce the first lien and second lien intercreditor agreements in the near term. We saw another busy week of news from the island of Puerto Rico. In an exclusive interview with Reorg Research, Christian Sobrino laid out his five priorities as the new executive director of the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AAFAF. Sobrino said that he sees opportunities for quick workouts at a handful of non-Title III entities, as well as the potential for a consensual agreement with the GO bondholders who continue to participate in the court-mandated mediation process. He said his top priority is to complete the Commonwealth's debt restructure drive in the next 12-month to 18-month time frame established by the Permisa Oversight Board. On Monday, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed an informative motion addressing the August 8th announcement by Permisa regarding certain terms for a COFINA plan of adjustment. The UCC stressed that the June 29th certification of a new Commonwealth fiscal plan, quote, presents a material impediment to the execution and consummation of a settlement agreement. Specifically, the UCC argues that the plan includes revised assumptions that, quote, result in a significant cash flow deficit in the aggregate amount of approximately $28 billion, even assuming that the fiscal plan contemplated makes no plan distributions to Commonwealth creditors. Also in Puerto Rico this week, Judge Laura Taylor Swain dismissed in its entirety the union UTIR's complaint challenging the constitutionality of Permisa's appointment. Judge Swain pointed to the Territories Clause of the U.S. Constitution as a source of authority for Congress to approve Puerto Rico's Constitution, enact Permisa, and make and amend rules and regulations for Puerto Rico. On Thursday, UTIR appealed this ruling. In a separate matter, Governor Ricardo Rosselló said Tuesday that his administration will appeal Judge Swain's ruling regarding the Promesa Oversight Board's budgeting and fiscal plan powers. In addition, Senator Tomas Rivera Schatz and Representative Carlos Mendez Nunez both filed notices of appeal regarding Judge Swain's August 7th opinion, dismissing in its entirety the Puerto Rico Legislative Assembly's lawsuit regarding the implementation of Promesa's certified 2019 budget. Also this week, multiple creditor groups issued updated 2019 statements, including the QTCB Notarial Group, the Puerto Rico Mutual Funds Group, a new process-secured creditor group, the COFINA Senior Coalition, and the Mutual Fund Group, as well as the GO and the PREPA ad hoc groups, which both issued corrections to previously filed statements. In addition, independent investigator Cobran Kim said it will publish its final report on its probe of Puerto Rico's public debt on or before Monday, August 20th. In Argentina, on Wednesday, CLISA missed the due date to file its second quarter results with local regulator Comisión Nacional de Valores, or CNV. Under CLISA's 9.5 unsecured bonds, 
a reporting covenant requires the company to issue its financials to note holders within 60 days after the end of each first, second, and third quarters of the company's fiscal year. A day later, Cleese's director, chairman, and shareholder Aldo Roggio presented his resignation after he admitted paying bribes to former government officials in the Kirchner administration under the ongoing investigation known as Notebookgate. Roggio said Wednesday during testimony before Judge Bonadio that bribes reached the amount of 5% of the subsidies granted by the federal government to CLISA during the 2003 to 2011 period. Quote, Mr. Roggio has presented today his resignation as director and chairman of the board of the company in order to facilitate its activities, ratifying its path of progress and fostering its development for the future. The board is analyzing the actions to be taken, quote, to reaffirm its standards of good corporate practices, and it appointed its current vice chairman, Alberto Esteban Vera, as CLISA's new chairman of the board. Other top red stories of the week were full beauty sponsor Apex Partners working with PJT Partners to explore discounted debt buybacks. Blackboard new coverage, company looks to sell cash net business. Sources indicate ASIC could fetch low to mid-teens EV multiple. Opioid litigation, MDL judge postpones track one trials to September 2019. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Stephen, and good morning, lawyers, advisors, and all other restructuring professionals. And let's see what the week has in store for us. On Monday, August 20th, Gibson Brands, there is a hearing related to the unsecured guarantee claim for GSO's international term loan, with the debtors having estimated said claim at zero, which I guess to be expected. Anyways, the UCC this past Tuesday joined with the axe maker's request. And we also have second quarter earnings from Cumulus Media, their first earnings report since their plan went effective back in June. In the first quarter, their EBITDA rose 4% on flat revenues. Earnings and season continues on Tuesday, August 21st, with Community Choice Financial and Seadrill, the equity of the latter company now trading on the Oslo Stock Exchange. On Wednesday, August 22nd, we have a combined plan and DS hearing in Toys R Us, and a three-day trial begins for Momentive before Judge Robert Drain, the matter at issue being the cram-down interest rate on the company's replacement first lien and bug-and-a-half lien notes. This past Tuesday, his honor did lean on the parties to continue mediation, saying no side will win 100% of what it wants. And I quote, I wouldn't mind if you put off the trial if you think there's something to be said for that. Personally, I think there's a lot to be said for not being in the courthouse in late August, but that's me. Nevertheless, court action continues on Thursday, August 23rd, with settlement and DS hearing for Rex Energy and a procedures motion hearing in the Weinstein companies. And there is also an exclusivity hearing in Pacific Drilling, the Jarndus versus Jarndus of offshore rig contractor cases. And mediation in Pacific Drilling concludes on Friday, August 24th. On August 9th, Judge Michael Wiles told the various parties to return to mediation and that the debtor's decision to pursue the ad hoc's plan and Quantum Pacific's plan simultaneously, quote, confuses me to death, unquote, and would be the, quote, absolute worst, unquote, path forward. Alas, the history of humanity will testify that such wise advice is rarely heeded. And on that grim but realistic note, I'll turn it back to you, Stephen. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Mark Fisher sat down with senior reporter Andrew Berlin and covenant analyst Peter Washkowitz to discuss volatile credits coming out of Q2. 
So I'm here today with uh, Andrew Berlin and Peter Washkowitz. Uh, we're going to do a new segment, actually, this time, uh, featuring companies that experience the most volatility post our earnings report. And it's hopefully um, this will be something that we do quarter in and quarter out. Uh, so as I said, I'm here with uh, Andrew and Peter. Andrew Berlin is a senior reporter, came to us from Thomson Reuters, and before that was with DebtWire. Uh, Peter Washkowitz uh, is a covenant analyst, and before coming to Reorg was with uh, with, with Millbank. Um, Andrew, this is actually your first time being on the podcast, uh, so welcome. And uh, Peter, for everybody that uh, that doesn't know, actually started the podcast effort at uh, at Reorg, and um, those uh, those podcasts are um, still available uh, up on the, uh, the on the site on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever you might be listening. Uh, so welcome, welcome, guys. Um, so the first uh, company, uh, the, actually the companies that we're going to be talking about um, three uh, today, uh, Sanchez Energy, uh, Diebold, and uh, Ultra Petroleum. Uh, those are three of the companies that uh, post earnings have seen um, quite a lot of movement uh, in their bond prices. And our goal here is to go through the situations and uh, just provide an update, what happened, and uh, you know, hopefully what are we expecting going forward. So to start, Sanchez Energy, um, after the company reported, uh, bonds, just to frame it, bonds, uh, unsecured bonds fell from uh, the nearest maturity, fell from the high 80s to now uh, indicated in the mid 60s, 65. And um, the later dated unsecured fell uh, from the high 60s to now indicated at uh, 52 uh, last, I, last I checked. And this is after the company uh, released what um, was really deemed to be disappointing results, uh, specifically for uh, its core assets. And the question that people are asking now is um, how will Sanchez Energy pay off its uh, bond that's maturing in 2021? There's 600 million that's coming due. So to provide some background, Sanchez is an independent exploration and production company. Uh, it's focused on um, U.S. onshore in uh, the Eagleford uh, in the Eagleford Shale. Uh, about 60% of the company's revenue comes from oil, and the rest is split between uh, natural gas and NGLs. The company um, went through pretty big transformation last year when, um, with uh, combined with Blackstone, they purchased what they call uh, the Comanche asset. Um, this uh, th this asset is held in an unrestricted uh, subsidiary um, now, and uh, was was purchased with Blackstone uh, last year for for 2.3 billion. Um, and the way I'm going to talk about this company is, uh, you know, first this asset, and then the rest of the company, because that. That's really how you should be, or, or how people think about it as um, almost two separate entities, this unrestricted sub and um, the rest of the company, which are um, restricted restricted assets. So currently, in this unrestricted sub, there are there's a little under 700 million of debt. Uh, the way we got there was um, the company uh, partnered in a 50-50 buy uh, with Blackstone to purchase um, 155,000 net acres of oil and gas assets in uh, Maverick, um, Dimmit, Webb, and LaSalle counties. They did this early last year. Um, as I said, 50% uh, was Sanchez. The other 50% uh, was Blackstone. And the way Blackstone purchased it was they actually split it up between an unrestricted sub, 
which is this unsub entity, um, Comanche, and then a restricted um, subsidiary bought the rest. Um, 37% of it was bought, um, if you look at the whole purchase price, 37% of it was bought uh, through this unrestricted sub, and then the other 13% um, was bought from, from the restricted sub. On this unrestricted sub, which is where I want to uh, focus, um, it was actually financed in part through 500 million of preferreds, which actually Blackstone contributed and owns the majority of um, today. That unrestricted sub, um, from when you look about it, Sanchez's uh, portion of, of the, the entity that was purchased, it has 100% of the assets that were producing at the time of the, the purchase. And 40% um, of wells that um, new wells that will be drilled post-purchase, um, and the, uh, the the structure of it, the debt structure, is um, that 500 million preferred, and um, the rest in, um, in in a revolver um, that is currently uh, partially partially drawn. And and what's what's interesting here, and I want to focus on, is the preferred itself. So the way it was structured is. Blackstone requires um, certain return targets um, before Sanchez can, can reap any of that, that equity value. So you could sort of think of it as the value that's in unsub um, in this Comanche entity is actually trapped until, uh, until Blackstone gets the return that they negotiated under this preferred. And Based on the metrics that they came out with, it's it's actually more than 500 million uh, face. Reorg actually calculates that um, today uh, it would actually be a little under 700 million that Sanchez would have to fund in order to take out that preferred. Um, that actually, because of the way the formula works, that actually dips to under 600 million in 2020, but then actually increases back to 700 million uh, by 2024, which is the maturity date. Um, Sanchez is also required to pay 50 million uh, a year on, on that preferred to, to Blackstone too. So it's sort of a complicated structure there, and uh, it is interesting that it, it really sort of traps the, the value of, of that asset uh, until uh, Blackstone is, is paid off through, through that preferred. And then the rest of the company's assets um, are, um, are restricted. Um, the, the, there's nothing blocking uh, value from flowing. Uh, they're in um, the Katerina and Maverick areas. Uh, currently, Sanchez is focused um, on, on the Katerina. So um, what happened then? So that sets it up. Um, what happened on the, the second quarter call? Um, really, you know, I'll read some quotes here, um, but, but really CEO um, Tony Sanchez he expressed uh, disappointment over, you know, what he called below expectations, um, below expectation performance um, at the company's Comanche um, assets, particularly in uh, the upper Eagleford uh, zone, uh, said over the last couple of quarters. Management actually, quote, um, said uh, they hired a leading consulting firm. Um, and the company also said, quote, we have experienced several quarters of production results that have not lived up to our expectations. During the second quarter of this year, we continue to see higher than anticipated production declines on Comanche wells brought online during the second half of 2007 and early 2018. And of course, that, um, end quote, and of course, that is 
particularly concerning for the company because um, that, that asset has to perform in order for the company to, um, to create value there to get beyond, um, beyond that preferred. Uh, and then the rest of the assets, um, you know, continued on. The company did benefit somewhat from, uh, you know, higher oil prices. But overall, um, uh, particularly actually in the Comanche, um, that's where you had some underperforming. Um, uh, it, it underperformed um, somewhat. Uh, the company on an LTM basis um, is $500 million in EBITDA. Um, like as I said, there's a little under 700 million uh, at Comanche, and then 2.2 billion on the rest of the company's assets. Uh, of that 2.2 billion, 500 million of the debt is secured, um, and then there's another 600 million uh, of unsecured notes. That's what's maturing in 2021, and that's what traded down from the uh, the high 80s um, to indicated in the uh, the, the mid 60s. Um, now, in that 500 million, uh, approximately a third of that EBITDA is at that unrestricted, unsub uh, entity, and then the rest is um, at the, the the rest of the company. So uh, Sanchez ended the quarter with uh, uh, about 440 million of cash, uh, 675 million in total liquidity. Though of that liquidity, only 463 million of it uh, sits outside that unrestricted subsidiary. And it's important to break out the two entities right now, because one, you've got, um, you know, as I called it, the trapped value at Comanche. But then the rest of the business, they have to worry about the 2021 uh, notes. And, and that's the, the, the next uh, to mature. So you look at the company's uh, cash flow profile, and you know, we know the liquidity, and you look at the company's cash flow profile, you have the 500 million in, in EBITDA on an LTM basis. Uh, the company earlier increased um, their, their CapEx um, guidance in, in, in a prior quarter, and uh, reiterated this quarter, where they're um, looking to spend 500 million um, in capital expenditures, expenditures for the year. Uh, they spend about 160 million um, in cash interest, and then plus there's that 50 million in annual distribution um, to the to the unsub uh, preferred. So, so with that, um, I want to bring Peter in. Um, you know, Peter, with 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 that knowing um, the issues now, uh, and if we just focus on that next maturity, you know, what does the company do? How do they pay off that uh, that 2021 note? Uh, sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, well, so under um, under Sanchez's capital structure, they have a uh, a first lien ABL. They have first lien notes, which they had entered into earlier this year, that is parry with the ABL, but it's a first in, last out. Um, and then they have the two unsecured notes. So the revolver was amended in connection with the entering into of the the first lien notes and. Um, it's it's pretty simple. The the revolver essentially allows anything that the first lien notes allows. So from a covenants perspective, it's fairly easy. You just need to balance the first lien notes with the uh, with the unsecureds. Um, so there there are three viable options that Sanchez has to deal with the 2021s. Um, they could do asset sales. They can make um, they can make asset. Let me back up. There there are three there are three options that they can do for um, to redeem the 2021 notes or to help unsub uh, redeem the preferred shares. Uh, they could do asset sales, they can do investments into unsub, uh, which would allow them to, to redeem the preferred shares, or they can repurchase the 2021s in the open market. Um, now under the, the, the first lien notes, uh, the asset sale covenant allows Sanchez to use 500, 500 million of the proceeds to either invest in unsub for the purpose of redemption of the preferred shares, 
or they can use 500 million to redeem the 2021 notes. If the 2021 notes are not outstanding, 150 can be used for the 2023 notes. Now, the problem is, um, in terms of using the proceeds for the redemption of the preferred shares, the existing notes, uh, you know, they have an asset sale covenant too. They do not allow for the the redemp for proceeds to be used for redemption unless Unsub would become a restricted subsidiary. Um, for that to happen, Sanchez would need to assume all the outstanding debt. Um, long story short, they don't have the debt capacity right now to assume all that debt. So Unsub has to remain uh, separate right now. So it does not look like asset sales can right now be used to redeem the preferred shares, but um, 500 million can be used for the 2021 notes. And um, in an odd point, Mark, I was actually mentioned this to you this morning, um, the, the indentures for the 2021 notes do not require them to be repurchased with asset sale proceeds at par. Typically, uh, asset sale proceeds have to repay outstanding notes uh, at par. So um, to the extent that uh, Sanchez Energy were to sell assets and get 500 million of proceeds, they could go into the open market. And you know, so that's where the 2021 notes uh, trading at distressed prices is kind of a, a mild advantage. They can, they can repurchase more than 500 million of face amount. Um, so it, it would help them deleverage. Um, of course, that that implies that they can sell assets for 500 million. Um, you know, I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, and the company actually did ad- address that. Um, it's been known that they have been trying to to sell assets, and on the call, uh, the the company did say that uh, they have received quote several proposals um, that they are evaluating. Uh, these are for both uh, the companies Maverick and Palmetto uh, assets. Uh, but then uh, the CEO um, said that, quote, until someone pays us for that value, we won't sell it for cheap. Uh, so I guess um, take that for, um, for, take that however you want. Um, but there is, you know, according to the company, a, a sale process underway. Right. Well, um, so if they're going to be obstinate and wait out for, you know, the, the highest price, I, I mean, there are some other options available, although none of them um, kind of would allow them to deleverage to the same extent as asset sell proceeds. Um, the other way to directly address the 2021 notes is through their uh, prepayment uh, capacity. Unfortunately, under the um, under the uh, the the firstly notes, the, their capacity is essentially limited to $40 million. Um, now, given the, the, the price of the 2021 notes, that could allow them to repurchase, let's say, $60 million. Um, but given how many, given, I think, you know, well over $500 million, $600 million of 2021 notes, $60 million is not really going to, it's kind of almost a drop in the bucket compared to, you know, how much outstanding debt they have. Thanks, uh, thanks Peter. Um, Let's uh, let's move on to the next one, uh, Debolt. Sandra, you've been following them very closely, and uh, why don't you tell everybody what's going on? Sure. Thanks, Mark. So, Debold is the second largest manufacturer of ATM machines in the U.S. And in 2016, the company launched a tender offer for all the outstanding shares of Wincore Nixdorf AG, which is a German company um, that provides retail and retail banking hardware and software and services. And the tender offer was subject to um, at least 67.6% um, 
participation by Wincore shareholders. Um, ultimately, 76.9% of the shareholders tendered their shares. Um, the minority shareholders um, of Wincore, which is now called Diebold Nixdorf AG, um, that didn't tender received uh, rights to put their shares to Diebold at 55.02 euros um, per share or to continue um, receiving a dividend if they didn't exercise the put. Well, just to provide more context, um, Diebold got hit with a double whammy um, when they uh, announced second quarter earnings. It was an unexpected miss, um, and in their uh, earnings report, they significantly lowered their uh, projected EBITDA for the year um, from a range um, of 380 to 410 million to 280 to 320 million, and downward revised its net or downward revised its net loss from between negative 75 million and negative 95 million to negative 325 million and negative 365 million. The company is also forecasting negative 100 million of free cash flow um, for the year. At June 30th, uh, liquidity stood at 882.2 million, um, comprising revolver availability and cash that included 299 million of cash. Uh, in the August 13th update, the company said that, that it, paid, it had paid the initial $160 million um, of the put obligations with cash and revolver and would use the same sources to pay the additional amount that had, uh, that had put. Um, total debt at outstanding at June 30th is slightly below $2 billion. There's about $1.5 billion of secured debt and $400 million of unsecured. And what's Interesting to note is that this is not just uh, a Diebold specific problem. It's definitely something that has um, hit the industry um, overall. Um, the company's peer, NCR, which is the largest ATM maker, earlier this week also lowered uh, EPS guidance pretty significantly. So meanwhile, um, on the call, management said that it was actively in um, negotiations with uh, lenders for covenant relief um, under its term loan and revolving credit agreement. Um, the company in its 10Q disclosed that uh, $160 million worth of these shares had been put to the company um, and updated um, in a disclosure on August 13th. Um, that the redemptions had increased and now total $255 million. Um, the company said it's using its revolver and cash to fund, fund the puts. Um, in total, minority shareholders have put 3.8 out of 6.9 million shares to Win uh, of Wincor to the company um, after the price fell below the uh, put threshold. Um, there's another 3.1 million shares um, that could be put to the company that would cost another $195 million subject to uh, foreign exchange. Um, however, the stock is now trading at 56.3 euros um, as of today. So it remains to be seen um, how the stock trades and if those additional sh uh, shares will be put. Following the news, um, the Diebold's um, bonds due 2024 fell from 
um, the mid 80s um, to as low as 54 and three quarters um, after the company disclosed the news about the share puts. The company, as we reported uh, last Friday, has uh, engaged Jones Day and Evercore to discuss options. Um, and there have been subsequent reports that the company is also working with Credit Suisse um, to explore um, a sale of the company. Um, additionally, the administrative agent to the uh, credit facility, JP Morgan, is working with Simpson Thatcher on amendment negotiations um, as the company explores financing alternatives, which could include domestic and foreign lines of credit. The term loan uh, today is, uh, quote, the, the institutional term loan is quoted at 83.86, and the bonds um, have since rallied on the news about the company potentially selling itself um, and most recently traded at 69 and a half. Um, what's, it's, it's, it's important to note, I think, that this isn't the first uh, amendment request that the company has um, asked of its uh, bank group this year, um, also uh, solicited covenant relief in April. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of concessions um, the bank group um, demands this time around. However, the company is saying that they are, uh, the, the talks have been constructive. So Peter, why don't you tell us a little about the covenants in the term loan A and the revolver that they're seeking relief from? Uh, sure, Andrew. Um, under the, the credit agreement, there is a three times uh, uh, interest coverage ratio, and there is a four and three quarters in total net leverage ratio that drops down to four and a half times um, in the December 2018 quarter. So what's interesting here is that um, as of June 30th, and this is before uh, the company's uh, downwardly revised EBITDA, uh, their leverage ratio was, four, was roughly 4.7 times. So they were in compliance for this quarter. Um, they would be in compliance through the September quarter, but when it drops down to four and a half times, um, they would not be able to meet it. Now, if you use their, um, if their, their projected 2018 uh, EBITDA of um, 280-320, the leverage ratio jumps to between 5.1 times and 5.8 times. So, uh, you know, it's, they're they're kind of you know going further and further away from being able to comply with the test. Now, um, after the two hundred fifty-five million dollars share put, which they had, the company said they use revolver and cash, um, the leverage jumps to five point nine times to six and three quarters times. So, essentially, the company is now seeking covenant relief on already uh, loosened covenants and. Um, you know, not even not even um, assuming that the additional shares are put, they would need to essentially seek about a you know one and a half to two times turn uh, loosening of their leverage ratio, which has already been loosened, uh, and that's kind of just to remain in compliance. Uh, they would uh, clearly uh, not be able to draw on any part of the revolver that has not um, been drawn at that point, um, and they would not be able to use their cash. Which is being netted from debt, unless you know, unless the leverage would, unless they had any kind of cushion. So essentially, they are negotiating for uh, uh, almost a massive increase, a loosening of their covenants. Uh, even if they were to get it, their liquidity would be somewhat limited. 
Thanks, guys. Um, we'll definitely continue to keep an eye out for for Diebold and see what happens next. Definitely a volatile situation as well. Um, so the the last one we wanted to talk about was uh, Ultra Petrol is Ultra Petroleum, uh, Ultra Petroleum Natural Gas Focused EMP uh, operations in the Pinedale field in Wyoming. They reported results on August 9th. And since then, the company's long-dated bonds uh, due in 2025 fallen from around 60 to the low 40s, where they're indicated now. And the company's bonds that are due in 2022, uh, these are both unsecured, have fallen to an indicated price of 50 from the low 60s prior to the earnings report. I should note that these bonds are actually quoted in the low 70s in, in early July. So uh, certainly um, you know, quite a fall. So uh, what happened um, on, on the second quarter call, Ultra lowered its full year EBITDA guidance. They reversed, uh, and this is important, they reversed uh, their recent drilling strategy, reverting back to drilling vertical wells from its recent uh, testing of horizontal wells after management was, quote, certainly disappointed in some of the more recent wells. Uh, so some background on Ultra. They emerged from bankruptcy on April 12th last year. A company emerged with $2 billion in debt, $800 million of which at the time was secured. Um, and disclosure statement projections that they put out had the company doing $875 million of EBITDA by 2018, and that was on $3 natural gas. Uh, so what that looks like now, uh, subsequent to emergence, Ultra's EBITDA guidance, they lowered it a number of times. And then on this recent call, on this recent quarter, uh, management lowered it again to an estimate of $509 million. So you know, quite a difference from what those disclosure statement estimates were. So why did this happen? Uh, pricing um, is definitely one of the, um, the the issues. This has been building on them for uh, a couple of quarters, realized natural gas pricing. Historically, uh, Ultra was able to receive near benchmark pricing for its natural gas. Uh, the company produces gas in, in Wyoming, um, sells it into the Rockies region, and actually the end location of a lot of its gas ends up in, uh, in the West Coast through a pipeline network such as uh, the Opal Hub. Um, the uh, disclosure statement projections uh, when they came out, they, they thought that the company would realize um, about a dime, about 10 cents less than, um, than Henry Hub. Uh, however, in the second quarter, Ultra's realized natural gas price was $2.11, and that excluded derivatives. Uh, so quite a difference from where um, natural gas is uh, now. The, the company, to show you uh, how this could be a longer term uh, issue here, the company provides uh, their hedging activities. And what they said is they've locked in swaps uh, through 2019 at, um, at a discount of 70 cents, uh, 77 cents to the benchmark. Uh, so what that basically says is that if natural gas uh, is at that 270, 280 uh, range next year, Ultra's realized pricing or locked in pricing uh, would be about $2. So, um, you know, to me, it's it's it's, um, it's interesting that they would lock that in. Um, you know, it, it, maybe it, it talks to uh, their their belief on where gas uh, spreads are going uh, for their region or, or you know, they might not improve. Um, you know, we'll see. Only time will tell. Um, or perhaps they just wanted to fix their their, their pricing. Um, but seventy seven cent um, discount is certainly not what they were um, 
uh, what, what they were projecting in the disclosure statement at, at the time. Uh, the other thing that's hitting them is is production. Um, production was less than than expected. Uh, the company lowered their full year guidance um, to a midpoint of a little less than 280 uh, BCFE. Uh, the prior guidance was 290, so it's not that big of a hit from uh, from what their original guidance was. But um, the important thing here is the reason why um, guidance has changed, and this goes to the strategy shift. Um, Going from the horizontal uh, to the to the vertical wells, and that was a surprise um, to people. Uh, so what they had said, you know, I'll, I'll use sort of uh, you know their words to summarize what they said here on the call. Um, management said that they would pivot back to uh, drilling vertical wells, and what was surprising here is this came only one quarter. Uh, after they told investors that Ultra's future was in horizontal uh, wells um, during the company's first quarter call, interim CEO Brad Johnson said, quote, Ultra is in the beginning stages of transforming the Pinedale field from a vertical to a horizontal play. Similar to what has taken place in other prolific basins, it is important to note that in addition to superior returns, our horizontal wells also produce significant oil rates, oil rates with condensate yields much higher than the field average. Uh, he continued, we believe the returns from horizontal wells in the Pinedale field will highly economic will be highly economic on a return basis at or even materially below current gas and basis pricing. Uh, so I'll contrast that with uh, what he said on the second quarter call, which was, quote, while we anticipated variable results and had some encouraging results from our horizontal program, overall, the average performance of these wells in the second quarter was below expectations. And with the, the forward strip suggesting lower gas prices in 2019, in 2019, it is appropriate to ramp down the horizontal program while we incorporate our learnings. So that's quite a shift uh, in just one quarter time. Reorg, uh, we had written about this underperformance in early July. Uh, we pulled results from the Wyoming Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, uh, which showed that initial production rates uh, from these wells that were completed in the second quarter were below the company's uh, hard, prior horizontal well average and below what the company said there, um, the, what they had budgeted for 2018. Uh, and the company actually showed more well results in their second quarter presentation that uh, were all below the initial production averages that they laid out in the in the first quarter they did however point to uh, one zone uh, a1 um, which is in the lower lance that did exhibit a, a higher overall average and the company said that that is where they would focus horizontal uh, drilling um, so what what does this all mean? Um, you know, taking these these, these couple of events, uh, these couple of issues um, together, management guided to 509 million of EBITDA for the full year. Uh, they maintain their capex guidance of 400 million, so lower production, but maintain the the capital uh, expenditure guidance. They did spend uh, 250 million of that though in the first half. So if you think about it, where are they on a run rate basis? It is, that assumes 150 million in the second half. So I guess about a 300 million uh, run rate on an annual uh, basis. Um, though when you look at production, 
production is set to decline in the second half. So, you know, perhaps that 300 million isn't what they uh, they need to maintain production. But management did say that uh, maintenance capex is just 270 million. So, you know, we'll see how that balance. One of the things we're going to be looking at is that balance between what they spend and how production trends. Another part of cash flow here, Ultra spends about 125 million on cash interest. When, uh, if you look at that 500 uh, million, 509 million EBITDA target, that implies 4.3 times leverage at par, three times leverage at market through the unsecured bonds, uh, where I you know, said that they were indicated uh, at, at the beginning of this. So, you know, how are we looking at the Ultra right now? What comes next here? Company does, you know, have liquidity. Uh, liquidity at quarter end was 370 million. Uh, the next maturities are in early 2022. Uh, there's Revolver uh, that, that comes due, and then a little bit later, those, uh, those, those unsecured bonds. Uh, some people uh, that we spoke to thought that the company should uh, buy back bonds at a discount, but on the quarter, management confirmed that their credit docs don't allow them to do that. Uh, according to Reorg Covenants, is an issue that we looked at as well. Buybacks are limited by a net leverage covenant, which the company currently exceeds. One thing to think about on liquidity, uh, these... Uh, a lot of that liquidity comes from their ABL and uh, like other oil and gas uh, uh, ABLs or RBLs, um, reserve-based uh, loans, they come up for um, semi-annual redetermination. So we'll see uh, what happens in the fall there with regard to their, their liquidity. Um, so how we're thinking about this, uh, ultimately, this is a, it's a natural gas price story. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how uh, gas prices trend. Um, that will likely determine uh, profitability and, uh, and, and, and future cash flow. Uh, the company said that they're going to continue to tinker with uh, the, that, those horizontal wells. Uh, we'll see what, uh, what comes out uh, of, of that. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Peter. Uh, this has been great. And back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all REARG Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Stephen Hopper, and this has been The Week in REARG.